0: Season greetings, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Terror Radio Podcast. If this is your first time joining me, then welcome. This is a podcast dedicated in bringing you the best of horror and thriller, all-time radio broadcasts, as well as original stories. I am your host, Keith, aka the radio show nerd. And as I'm sure you can tell by the sound of my voice, I received the ultimate gift from Santa, a cold and a sinus infection. So obviously I was naughty more than I was nice this year and had no idea, (laughs) but the show must go on. The title of our episode tonight is simply gearing up for Christmas, meaning our two stories don't deal with Christmas specifically, but the holiday is, shall we say, in the background. <laughs> so, without further ado, this is Terra Radio. The two radio series highlighted tonight are Hall of Fantasy and The Whistler. Our first radio play, it's an adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's short story, Markheim. And it was first broadcasted on the Hall of Fantasy, April 24th, 1947. Following that is the radio play, Decision. And this was first broadcasted on The Whistler, March 3rd, 1946. So, you all know the drill. Sit back. Turn down the lights and listen to Markheim, followed by Decision.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, the Granite Furniture Company with stores in Sugarhouse, Murray, and Provo presents The Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. We shall ascend to the world of the unknown and forbidden, down to the depths where the veil of time is lifted, and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of... Markheim. The Granite Furniture Company brings you the Hall of Fantasy... Listen now to original tales of the imagination and some of the classics of the supernatural as we take you down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy to the mysterious realms of the unknown. These are stories of eerie and fantastic thrills brought to you by your friends at the Granite Furniture Stores. And now for tonight's story. An adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's Markheim. They said that Markheim's first great crime was that he had committed murder. That's hardly true, for no man can kill his fellow until he first twists the knife in his own heart. This is the story of Markheim. He was a gambler accustomed to lightning shifts of fortune. But on the eve of his greatest triumph, he couldn't resist that final spin of the wheel. It was his life against the future. He wanted the decision to come swiftly, as it had always done before. But this time, the wheel turned tortuously slow for Markheim, and once set into motion, no power on earth could halt it. It was Christmas Eve. Markheim was happy to be towed along an Angela's little leash. loved him or what she knew of him. Angela was quite aware of the power of her smile and Markheim was aware of the fact that she'd been leisurely and charmingly spoiled. But even if it had been a great chain that had led him into this lovely garden, instead of a warm, sweet smile, he'd have resisted no more than he did now. For this leash would lead him to a fortune. More money than he'd ever dreamed existed in all the casinos in the world. Besides, he was in love with Angela.
2: Mark, when do you plan to speak to Papa?
1: Very soon, dearest. There are a few things I want to clear up first. It won't take long. Just a few days at the most.
2: Tomorrow, perhaps?
1: Tomorrow? Well, that's pretty short notice, darling. I'm afraid that I... Oh, I
2: want it tomorrow.
1: Yes, but why? What's so significant about tomorrow? I had thought to wait just a few oh, more... Oh,
2: tomorrow's just as good as any other day. In fact, it's better. It's Christmas. It's tomorrow or never.
1: Angela... What
2: are you saying? Oh, don't look so frightened, darling. I was only joking. Oh, that's better. Only it will be tomorrow, Mark, won't it? You
1: always get your own way?
2: Always, darling. But I wouldn't have insisted if I didn't think it would make us both happy.
1: And you think we'll be happier if I ask your father tomorrow?
2: Of course. There's no need to wait, and, and I want this for a Christmas present.
1: Christmas present?
2: Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, and speaking of Christmas presents, I have a very nice one for you.
1: Oh? Not too nice, I hope. I, I mean, I hope it wasn't too. Costly? Oh, but it was
2: very. I
1: wish you hadn't, Angela. That is, well, I have something for you, too.
2: You have? Oh, what is it?
1: Well, I. Well, you like it. It's, it's. Yes, it's very nice. I...
2: Now it's my turn. You shouldn't have done it. <laughs>
1: Nothing is too good for you. Nothing.
2: I hope it isn't too expensive.
1: expensive? <laughs> well, it was. But uh, it's just a little trinket. I,
2: I... Whatever it is, Mark, it'll be very nice. But if you weren't such a successful member of the stock exchange, I'd scold you for spending too much money on me.
1: Stock exchange? Oh, oh, oh yes, quite. Well, Angela, I think I'd better be going. So soon? Yes, I, I really must.
2: Then I won't detain you. But I want you here early tomorrow. Come just as soon as you possibly can.
1: <laughs> the iron rule of Angela. Ah, but I love it, darling.
2: Until tomorrow?
1: Tomorrow. As Varkai made his way through the dark streets, the chill, damp fog soon dispersed the warmth he'd felt in the rich comfort of Angela. And the last word he'd spoken to her as he'd taken his leave seemed to mock him as he traveled in the night futile gropings for happiness seemed to slap him full in the face with each new wave of the night-ray night mist. For a moment he thought to return to his foul, dingy little room, barren and ugly though it was. The thought of it made him shudder. Any other time he might have found some comfort in his hateful little iron bed. Another night he could have slept and dreamed of fabulous fortune, of an endless flood of gamblers lost, making him richer with every spin of the wheel. But there was no time for that now. For tomorrow was... He cursed the inconvenience of this moment. Tomorrow was Christmas. Suddenly, as if some henchman of the devil had whispered into his ear, Markheim heard the name that had been synonymous with resentment in his heart. That name seemed to strike faint but unmistakable sounds in his brain. It was very faint at first, like the soft tinkling snap of an icicle when it breaks. But it soon became a giant thing that loomed up so forcibly it was almost physical. It came without warning out of the thick fog of his brain, and Markheim suddenly found the name on his lips. Ziegler. 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 What do you want? Ah, it's you, Markheim. Let me in, Ziegler. On Christmas Eve, can't you see I'm closed? Open up. I've got to see you right away. All right. What kind of trouble are you in this time? Well, come on in. I don't want all that cold and damp peeping in. I've enough aches already. Yes. Merry Christmas. What's your end You do a pretty good business here, don't you, Zagler? We didn't come to talk about my books. What did you come for? I told you the last time that I wouldn't take any more of your stolen goods. I didn't come to sell anything, Zagler. My uncle's cabinets are disgustingly empty these days. Uh, he's moved his collection. I don't wonder at that. Your uncle is a remarkable collector. his items were rare indeed. It must have been quite a blow to him when he discovered that they were disappearing so methodically. <laughs> it was more of a blow to me, I assure you. He booted me clean out of the place. I was taking an awful chance by self-handing that stuff. An awful chance. Mm, but it's an awful profit, Zagler. What good's a profit when you want to get the yard after you? Well, if you didn't come here to sell what did you come for to buy? I want to buy a Christmas present for a lady. Mm, You'll pay dearly coming in on me like this. You know I have put up my shutters and I'm refusing business. You won't refuse my business, Eichler. You won't be getting any bargains either. You'll have to pay for both my time and your rather a surly manner, young fellow. I suppose you can pay. Mm, don't worry about that. Then you can pay it someone's way. I've done very well in the stock exchange. And likely as not, I'll do much better soon. My errand today is very simple. I'm really quite sorry, Zagler, that I have to disturb you this way, but it's a little matter I overlooked until this late hour. I must have this little compliment ready before morning. And, you know, a man would be a fool to deliberately harm his chances of a wealthy marriage. Well, let that be it, then. You've got a good customer, and if you have a chance, as you should tell me, for a fortunate marriage, I don't want to be an obstacle. Now, uh, here's a nice object. You'd you certain to favor it. It's a hand mirror. Guaranteed 15th century. It's from a fine collection. Whose collection, Zagler? In the interest of my customer, I would hold the name, if you don't mind. He was, shall we say, somewhat like yourself. The nephew of a remarkable collector. The pointed remarks of this unscrupulous old Peter suddenly flushed Markheim's column with waves of passionate resentment. They passed, leaving nothing but a slightly emotional residue in the slight nervous trembling in his hands. He took the mirror Ziegler held out to him. Surely you do not propose this for a Christmas present? Why not? Your lady should be very happy to have such a fine item. And every time she looks at herself in it, she'll think of her sterling husband. Your manner is likely to cost you something before long, Ziegler. So you suggest a thing like this. Look at it. Look at yourself in it. Though I dare say you'd look little better any other way. But look at it. Your future lady must be difficult to please, sir. I am buying a lady's Christmas present, not some monstrous souvenir of the sins and follies of the past. Certainly not that grim thing. You weren't actually serious about pawning that off on me, were you? Quite serious, sir. What are you made of, Zygler? What keeps your dry old heart at work these overtime years? You certainly must have a few thoughts now and then of something beside your miserable little existence. Are you joking with me, Markheim? You'll find it on the sale price if you are. <laughs> Everything about you can be found on the sale price, Agler. Come, what's the purpose of this talk? Christmas Eve, man. See how the world scurries by outside? They're all touched with a very warm, friendly spirit. What does your life consist of tonight but a hand for grabbing money and a safe for hoarding it? Is that all? You've drunk too much to the health of your lady, I think. Ah, then you have been in love. Tell me of those golden moments of yours, Zeigler. Tell me all about them. I have no time for such things. Mm. I have no time for this foolishness either. Do you take the glass or not? Yeah, but let's not be hasty. A pleasant talk, a pleasant walk. uh, How does that go? Well, pleasant it is, Zeigler, and I must not hurry away from any pleasure. Even one as doubtful as this. Instant is a precipice, Zeigler, a very high precipice. If we hurry, we fall and dash ourselves to a thousand meaningless pieces. Yes, if we hurry, we fall, Zeigler. Let's take our time this fine evening. Let us tear away the masks that hide us from each other. Who knows? We might even be friends. I have my books to balance tonight, Markheim. Either make your purchase or I have to thank you to leave the shop. To be sure. There is no time for being friends, is there? Show me something else, then. Show me something else, Zagler. There was something in Markheim's voice just then. It couldn't have been the words themselves. It was a tone or a light that flashed in his eye. But it filled the little dealer with an unexplainable terror. He turned and was about to climb the small ladder that would take him to a little object arch in a higher shelf. When suddenly Markheim poised a little dagger high in the air. It flashed only a fraction of a lightning bolt. This for you, Zygler, and a very Merry Christmas. Zygler flashed at the shelves like a chicken. Money he fell to the floor and flesh seemed the telescope into flesh, as he settled into a senseless little pile. Mark stared at it through eyes that had suddenly seen too much. A single tick of the old clock. Seemed almost to blot him into unconsciousness. His lips parted to speak. Must not hurry. Each instant, the presentness. Yes. Feigler! stand up! Stand up and speak to me. You are listening to a radio adaptation by Bob Olson of Markheim by Robert Louis Stevenson. On tonight's journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy, brought to you by your friends at the Granite Furniture Company with stores in Sugar House, Murray, and Provo. And now back to tonight's story of Markheim. Markheim the gambler wagered his life and became Markheim the murderer. In one swift blow, he'd cut himself away from any part of the world he'd known. That's why no one can tell his story now but... Markham himself. I stood there, my hand still clinging loosely to the dagger. That hand that seemed to have no relationship to the rest of my body. I looked about me. The candle on the counter caught a chill draft. and was wagging like the tail of an excited puppy steadied myself. So the room was heaving and tossing like a schooner in a storm. Hundreds of feet away, it seemed, the door was slightly ajar. Through this opening, a long, slim finger of light pointed accusingly at the very spot I stood. I leaped aside. A shiver of fright shocked through me as I realized the stupidity of the motion. I looked at the body of Zeigler. It lay there like a listless sack of sawdust. As suddenly, had the fright, a wave of calm came over me. I looked again at the body. It was nothing. Yes, there was nothing there to be afraid of. A hunk of lifeless something that had once been a man. The clock ticked on, but no longer affected the day of this thing on the floor. as yes, it was nothing. It had suddenly lost meaning to Zeigler, to the shop, to everyone but me. But that security didn't last. I looked again, saw the deep color forming about this haggard heap. That blood. It was still alive. What if it found a voice? What if this flesh should raise a cry that could be heard all over England and thence? Where? And it would take up its endless flight around the earth. It would never be still again. Never. Time. Time. I must have time. Oh, but time had such a raucous voice. Yes, what is time? A new precipice each instant. Each tick of the clock was a new danger. I picked up the candle started about the room, filling my pockets with the treasures of art that Zygler had gained so craftily and guarded so fiendishly. I saw things that terrified me. Things that turned out to be my own shadow. I'd catch a reflection of myself in a rack of mirrors, rich imported glasses that sent a new fear to wilt my nerves. But each time I looked, I saw a hostile sea of my own eyes spying on me. A thousand questions flashed across my world of hysteria. Why had I used a knife? Why hadn't I chosen a more quiet hour? Why had I killed him at all? And then there were more. Where was the servant girl now? When would she be back? How much time did I have? Yes, how much time? When would the world know of what I had done? When would Angela know? Oh, you fool. My brain became a racetrack for nightmares. There seemed to be something terrifying about the normal-as-ever rhythm of the footsteps out in the street. They must know about the thundering riot in this house. How could they help it? I began to fear nature herself expected her to break her own laws to accomplish my own personal destruction. Yes, what if the wall should suddenly fail to hide me? If the prying eyes of London should gain the power to see beyond nature's barriers? (laughs) Then, then another vision came to me in this room that was pulsating so with clamor and silence alike. Yes, yes, all the old women of London started to rock feverishly in their chairs and began to weave a rope with which I was soon to be hung. I knew I was tottering on the brink of the final shock that would send me screaming my guilt to the world if I didn't take hold of myself. But one thing I was rapturously grateful for, I was alone. I was alone. (laughs) No. Zygmunt! thank heavens he's gone time time yes i I must have time others will come the girl i must get the money no time to waste I walked over to the body shoved it with my foot It rolled over crazily and took on a queer, twisted posture. The face was pale like wax. I remembered the wax museum I'd seen as a lad. And that memory robbed the scene of its grotesque quality. I took new courage. I saw myself as a boy. (laughs) Here's how horrified I'd been at those realistic reproductions of famous murders. Even the music came back to me. The monotonous chant of the Calliope. The time came for me to act a run. But I didn't run. I grabbed the keys from Ziegler's coat pocket and started up the stairs that led to his private apartment. There were 24 steps and 24 separate torches that led to the drawing room where I knew I'd find the safe. As I walked, I seemed to hear the echo of another footstep coming from behind me. Now I was at the top I pulled open the door, entered, and bolted it behind me. The sense that I was not alone in this house was about to drive me mad. I longed to be in my shoddy little room, away from the eyes that were constantly dancing about in this house. Every man who walked became an avenger and sought stealthily for some scrap of evidence that would curse me forever. I thought of Angela, not long, just the length of a breath or so, but I heard her voice in hollow mockery.
2: Tomorrow or never, Ma. Tomorrow or never.
1: Yes, She said she was only joking. She thought she was only joking. I was before the safe. The finale of this little drama. I fumbled with the keys. There must have been 50 in all. And again, the rush of time began to make me tremble with uncontrollable anxiety. Time, time, time. If I ran out of time, this nightmare could have no meaning at all. I shot a glance at the door nothing stirred. Yes, I was satisfied that I must be alone. It was quiet here. Even my heart began to slow down a little. Suddenly, another sound broke the stillness. It came from the nearby church. The organ was playing a familiar hymn. I listened. Then I heard it. A sound to freeze a scream in its making. The knob on the door was turning. Someone was going to enter this room. I was caught in a vice of terror. Slowly the door opened, and there, there was a face without a body staring at me. Who,
2: who are you?
1: Did you call me. I stared. I could do nothing else. The face seemed to swim before me. It seemed a familiar face. No, no, it wasn't familiar either. Oh, what was that face? It belonged to neither heaven or earth. What do you want of me? I came to see you. See me? How did you know that I was here? You told me. I told you? Not directly, perhaps. Then you really do know me? Right down to the soul. Are you the devil? Does it matter? Oh, yes, but but you knew me some time ago. (laughs) Thank heaven you don't know about the... the murder. Oh, but I do. I came to warn you that the servant girl is after a sweetheart early tonight, and is on her way home now. Now, yes. Shall I tell you what she brings with her for your Christmas? What? The gallows. Now you must hurry. Shall I tell you where to find the money? For, for what price? It's a Christmas gift. What? What are you going to do with me? You know that I'm really not evil. I had no heart for these things. Yours will probably be a deathbed repentance. I have no concern with that. I'm interested in you only as long as you are alive. But... but why do you do this at all? Can't you see that my hands are red? Don't you realize that I've murdered the little dealer? Yes. Then why do you stop with me? Because your name is Markheim. Yes, 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 my name is Markheim. You know that I'm made up of evil and of good. You'll see that they don't destroy the good to avenge the evil... You, you will help me, won't you? This money you're about to take, how will you use it? On the stock exchange. That's where you've already lost thousands. Yes, but this time I have a sure thing. You will lose again, Markheim. You know. I do. But but I'll save out half. You will lose that, too. Oh, if that happens. If I do lose again, what next? Yes, yes, I'll start over with Angela. You have lived for 36 years, Markheim. Fifteen years ago, you would have shuddered at the thought of stealing Three years ago, the name of murder would have made you ill. Who knows, Markheim, what you might embrace in the next five years? But I still have good in me. Tell me, have you grown any better at all in the past few years? I can remember when I was a boy. Yes. I still love the things that I loved then. But are you better than you were then? No, 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 no. And you still want me to help you get the money. Remember three years ago, Markheim? Weren't you seen a little chapel... Yes, yes, I was there. I meant to go back. And didn't you raise your voice louder than the others in the hymn? Yes, but... Where are you going? we part company here. Time has run out. That's the maid, you see. The maid? Oh, what shall I do? Why not do what you did to the Here's your last great danger. One more swift blow, and you can finish at your leisure. Don't. No, don't. don't go, don't leave me. He's gone. My last great danger. Yes. There is nothing left to do but I took the little dagger from my coat pocket and crept down the stairs. Twenty-four steps to where well.
2: tomorrow or never more. Tomorrow or never
1: I can do it quickly. I'll tell her old Zeigler is ill. Yes, now, don't crack a smile, Markheim. Whatever you do, don't overact. But curse the thing that made me lose all this precious time with talk. Yes, too late now, though. Much too late. Too Too late. Too late. There's no more time for you, Markheim. You again. Who are you, anyway? The door, Markheim. Here's your chance. Open the door. First, tell me who you are. Don't you know? Don't you know, really? No, no, I don't. My name is... Markheim. No! Then you're... The door,
2: Markheim.
1: Answer the door.
2: Hello. Is Mr. Seigler in?
1: Are you the maid? Uh, Yes. Then you'd... You'd better go for the police. I... I've just murdered your master. The tale of Markheim. Remember to join us next week at a new time for another journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. Tonight's program was adapted by Robert Olson from the story by Robert Louis Stevenson. Heard tonight were Carl Grayson as Markheim, Richard Harcourt as the narrator, Beth Calder as Angela, and Richard Thorne as Ziegler. Musical background was provided by Earl Donaldson. The engineer was Nephi Sorensen. These programs are produced and directed by Richard Thorne. Remember be with us again next Sunday night on call at a new time. Just one hour later at 9:30 p.m. when the Granite Furniture Stores in Sugar House, Murray and Provo will take you on another journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. The Signal Oil Program, the Whistler. far more logical had it happened in the springtime. In April, perhaps, with the rhododendrons blooming in Golden Gate Park. The kids playing ball on the green lawns and the maple trees coming to life again. Yes, spring in San Francisco would have helped explain part of it. But the rest would always be beyond logic and common sense. It wasn't springtime, it was November, with Christmas just around the corner. A cold, gray day with the steam sizzling in the radiators, as he sat near the window of his office on the 20th floor of the Hamilton building looking at an uninspiring assortment of x-rays of Mrs. Harrison's chest cavity.
3: Excuse me, Dr. Evans? Hmm?
1: Oh, yes, Miss Carlton.
3: Uh, Mrs. Harrison called again about the x-rays.
1: There's nothing wrong with her heart. All she needs is some fresh air.
3: Shall I tell her that?
1: No, I suppose I'll have to find her a disease with 20 letters. I'll call her.
3: And there was another call from uh, Mrs. John Cameron. Cameron? Can you see her today?
1: Is it important? She says so. Yes, they all do. All right, make it 12.30.
3: What about lunch?
1: I'll have to skip it. Mrs. Cameron's heart is undoubtedly more important than my lunch. <laughs> And you noted it down in the book simply, 12.30, Mrs. John Cameron. Later, when you had a chance to think, you decided if it hadn't happened so suddenly, it might not have happened at all. Perhaps that was part of it, Paul. The suddenness, the way it threw you off balance. But more than that, it was a black-haired girl with blue eyes standing by the window when you looked up from your x-rays a half hour later. You remember exactly how she looked. The turquoise dress with a gold belt and clip, the smart little felt hat accenting her dark hair, making you realize in a split second what was wrong with all the girls you ever knew. She must have come in while you sat at the film illuminator, looking at negatives and making notes. Evident mitral insufficiency, minor valvular lesion. Your doctor Evans. All oh, right, I'll be with you in a moment. Request detailed cardiograph media. There we are. Just get rid of this stuff. Please sit down. Now, what can I do for... for...
3: Hello, Doctor. I'm Carol Cameron.
1: Carol Cameron. (laughs) The, uh... uh, My, uh... nurse said, uh... you were rather concerned about yourself.
3: Oh, no, no, it's... It's it's not about myself. It's It's about my husband... Oh, I see. John Cameron, perhaps you've heard of him? Uh,
1: Stocks and Bonds, isn't it?
3: Yes, yes, a few too many for his own good, I'm afraid. Oh? He's, um, he's been a- under a-, a terrible strain recently, and night before last he had a rather severe attack. In his heart? Yes, yes. Uh, Dr. Miles, our family physician, suggested that I see you about it. I see. Uh,
1: well, tell me, uh, uh, where is your husband now?
3: At home, in bed.
1: Mm-hmm. Didn't uh, uh, Dr. Miles recommend a a hospital?
3: Well, John's awfully unreasonable. He wouldn't hear of it. He insisted that he'd be up and around in a day or two.
1: Well, that is unreasonable.
3: You'll you'll see him,
1: Dr. Evan? Yes, yes, of course. I'll be glad to. I'll do what I can. Just like that, Paul. A minute or so, and she's gone. You look up, you see her, and 30 seconds later, she could ask if you'd mind going to the North Pole for her, and you'd tell her you'd be glad to. All afternoon, you try to shrug it off. Tell yourself it's fantastic, that this is the sort of thing that keeps you away from second-rate movies. But that evening, when you call on John Cameron, it's still there. Lucinda Withers, the housekeeper, is waiting outside the door after you finish your examination. Oh, uh, where is Mrs. Cameron, Lucinda?
3: She went out for a moment, sir. Hmm. Tell me, is it serious?
1: Yes, I'm afraid it is.
3: I knew it. I could see it coming on. He's like a son to me, Doctor. I've been with the family for 20 years now. Since way before she came. Oh, I see. He was never like this before.
1: Oh, what do you mean by that?
3: She's not good for him. She worries him. Makes him nervous. Keeps him thinking about the 15 years between them.
1: yes, well, I, I'll have a prescription sent over in the morning. Uh, i better be going now. My taxi's waiting outside. Uh, you just keep him as quiet as you can, and uh, I'll check him again tomorrow.
3: Very well, Doctor. Oh, Dr. Evans. Oh. Just
1: a minute. I, uh, I wondered what happened to you. I was just about to go. I left instructions with the housekeeper. How is he? Angina pector It's It's quite serious, I'm afraid.
3: Oh, he hasn't been taking very good care of himself.
1: He's got to now.
3: I see. Well, uh, must you go right away? Yes,
1: I'm afraid I'd better. My taxi's waiting. Well, I thought it was waiting. Doesn't seem to be there now, That's thought. I told him to wait. I didn't even pay him. Oh, I, I... I'd
3: be glad to take you. I can
1: understand. The I... car's
3: right down at the curb. Oh, no, no,
1: no, no. I couldn't. There uh, will only take a minute to call another oh, cab.
3: No, no, it's really no trouble. <sighs> All right. I'll get my coat. There you are, Doctor. Right to the door. It
1: was awfully nice of you, Mrs. Cameron. All right. (laughs) Well, I uh, I guess the next thing to do is get out.
3: Just just a minute. I, I... I want to tell you I, I lied about the taxi. What? Huh? I told him to go. Why? Because I... I wanted to take you home. Why?
1: I'm, I'm very flattered. That's all.
3: I just wanted to tell you. It's,
1: it's happened to you too, has it? friend of mine, a Dr. Andrews. He's an awfully good hard man. I'm sure he'll take the case. Please,
3: please don't do that. What
1: else can I do? It's only going to make it worse. I
3: I... know, but you you, you just can't throw away what's happened to us, can you? It'd be wrong to... It'd be wrong to do anything else, Carol. Is that what we're here for? To spend our lives looking for something that isn't there, and then to suddenly find it?
1: Throw it away? Please, Carol. Well, Shall we forget it? I, uh... I'll be around tomorrow with the prescription. So that's how it started, Paul. Yes, it was easy to analyze it. To list a million reasons why it was wrong. But the trouble was that when you were all through analyzing It was still there, stronger than ever. You visit John Cameron the next day and the day after that. And before you know it, the days have grown into weeks. And the damp November night you arrange to meet her secretly at a little French cafe on Washington Street leads to a lot more of them. The two of you at the little corner table Henry reserves especially, not saying much, hardly realizing how the time has flown, that tomorrow is the day before Christmas. Oh, that's one of my favorite Christmas hymns. Beautiful. Yeah. Christmas, day after tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's hard to realize it. You're happy, Carol?
3: Happy and miserable.
1: Well, did you expect anything else?
3: No, 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 no. I knew it was going to be this way, Paul. It's just that I feel so helpless.
1: and I, I'm, I... I'm glad you came tonight, Carol, because... Because I'm afraid this is going to be the last time. Oh, Paul. Don't you see how impossible it all is? We're both beating our heads against a stone wall. You're absolutely right, Carol. We are helpless. But I see it, the only thing we can do is try to be square with ourselves. Honestly, it just won't work any other way.
3: No, I suppose not. John will probably hang on like this for years.
1: Yes, he might. At he's careful.
3: You know, Paul, it's terrible to feel this way. What way? I... I just can't help it, Paul. I I almost wish he'd... No, no, no. It's true. It's true. I never loved him, Paul. My family thought he'd be good for me. I didn't want any part of it. I know, I know, my dear.
1: You don't have to tell me.
3: He's unhappy and he's sick and he's miserable and it will always be that way. Why should he... Please, Carol.
1: Now, this is going to be the last time I mean it. I can get Dr. Andrews on the case next week. Oh, no. Look at me. Carol. Oh, it's going to work out somehow the right way. Will you believe that?
3: All right, Paul. If you say so.
1: Yes, Paul, it was the only thing to do. The honorable thing. Approved 100% by the Medical Association. But it doesn't help you sleep that night. And it doesn't help the next day when you make your regular call on John Cameron. Examine him, find him the same, leave his prescription bottle with Carol and go. Yes, it had to end, Paul. Because you were both beginning to think the thing that Carol almost said at the restaurant. That you both wished John would die. And then at ten o'clock that night... Hello? Dr. Evans. Yes? You must come.
3: Doctor. Mr. Cameron's
1: have a I'll be right over, Lucinda. Now listen carefully. There's a bottle of amyl nitrate in the medicine cabinet in the bathroom. Break up a tablet in a handkerchief and make him inhale it. Is that clear?
3: It's too late for that, Doctor. I'm afraid he's dead.
1: With the prologue of Decision... The Signal Oil Company is bringing you another strange story by The Whistler. Just remember these two points if you want to be sure of the tops in gasoline quality. One, in gasoline it takes extra quality to go farther. And two, Signal is the famous go farther gasoline. And now back to The Whistler. finally happened, Paul. John Cameron is dead. But it hasn't affected you as you thought it would. There was something so sudden about it. It happened so soon after you and Carol had decided to call it off. After she'd almost said what you'd both been thinking. Mm. There's something wrong with it. It just feels wrong. That's why after you've examined him, you turn to Lucinda. Uh, Lucinda. Yes, Doctor. You were here when it happened.
3: Yes. Mrs. Cameron had given him his medicine and gone to bed. I heard him call. Yes. What happened then? He'd been violently sick. Said his throat was burning. throat
1: was burning? Well, you must be mistaken.
3: No, sir. And he was all doubled up with cramps.
1: wrong. You must be. It's
3: the truth, sir.
1: Did you give him anything?
3: No. It was my night out. And I'd only just come in when...
1: Excuse me a minute. Well, Paul? Don't go in there. There's nothing you can do now.
3: I know. Well, it's over. Oh, Carol. Don't say anything, Paul. I don't want to talk about it or think about it anymore, ever. We've got to think about it. I know, I know. You don't have to tell me. He was all right this morning, just as well as could be expected. All right, Carol. What happens now? I...
1: No, I I, I won't say any more. You know what's ahead, I guess.
3: Of course. I'll be all right.
1: It's just... You you better go to bed. You need some rest. I'll take care of everything.
0: It's almost
1: midnight when you get back to the office and take the prescription bottle out of your pocket. The one you took from Carol's medicine cabinet. You forget to take off your hat and overcoat as you throw a few pieces of laboratory equipment together. Dissolve the powder in water and make a test. A very simple test.
0: Thyacinus. I knew it.
1: Poison. Well, Paul, it's quite a decision, isn't it? You look down at the blank death certificate on your desk until the letters burn into your brain and you can see them when you close your eyes. It's the most important decision you'll ever have to make, Paul. can do is sit and stare at the desk, trying to think it through. Your medical certificates on one wall, the Hippocratic Oath in a neat black frame on the other. Six o'clock, seven, eight, and then your nurse arrives.
3: Why, what? What, doctor, you've been here all night?
1: Yes. It's Cameron. He's dead.
3: Well, it was only a matter of time.
1: Yes. Yes, I guess it was.
3: I'll make out the certificate. Death from natural causes. Angina pectoris acute. I. Yes, Doctor?
1: Oh, oh, nothing. Hello? Carol?
3: Yes, Paul.
1: I've just filled out the death certificate. It in a second, if they ever get suspicious. Now, listen. I'll send the certificate over this morning. If nobody gets curious during the next week, I—I I think we'll be safe. All right, Paul. But we mustn't be seen together under any circumstances. I don't want you even to telephone me if you can possibly help it. Okay? Okay. That's all that. Good luck, darling. Well, hello, Miles. How are you? I'm a little puzzled at the moment. Thought I'd drop in for a minute. I certainly. Have a chair. Thanks. About Cameron. I've had a rather distressing experience. Oh? I've been their family doctor for some time, of course. I didn't know Mrs. Cameron before she married John some years ago, but I've always thought her a rather charming person. But she seems to be. Yes. You, uh, you know her pretty well, Paul? Well, naturally, in attending her husband... Of uh... course. Do you think she's a woman of character? Yes, yes, I'd say so. So would I. But Lucinda Withers, however, seems to think she's a murderess. So what does that mean? I don't know. The woman was completely confusing. A lot of rambling, disconnected remarks that seemed to imply that uh, you and Mrs. Cameron were in love. Well... As you said, Miss Withers seems to be confused. Yes. Well, i just think, Paul, that you ought to do something about Miss Withers. You know as well as I that this sort of thing can ruin you.
0: Hello. Hello, Carol. Yes.
1: Listen, darling. You've got to get Withers out of town. Yes. Yeah. I know it'll make it look worse, but it's the only thing we can do. Now, where's the family? do Well, that's good. Now, tell her she needs a rest. Anything. I know it sounds crazy, but it's better than sitting around waiting for the axe to fall. Well,
0: that's it. Good luck, darling.
1: You're walking on thin ice, Paul. You can almost hear it cracking under your feet, and it seems to be getting thinner. The funeral on Thursday, then Friday, Saturday, and Lucinda's still in town. Carol was right. It only made it worse to try and get her to leave. You're just waiting now. It's only a matter of time. And then, bright and early, Monday morning. Hello, Doctor. I'm Willard Stevens. How do you do? I'm afraid I... I'm John Cameron's cousin. Flew out from New York. I see I have a rather delicate problem on my hands. I hope you'll understand. I'll try to. Bob John's death. I had a letter from him indicating he planned to make certain changes in his will. It arrived just a day or two before he died. Does that suggest anything to you? No, I'm afraid it doesn't. You naturally ascribed his death to his heart condition? Yes, naturally. I realize it would be embarrassing for me to contest your diagnosis... I'm hoping you'll work with me, and... In what? I had a talk with Miss Withers the night I arrived. She's a meddlesome old fool. Oh? How did you know? Uh, Dr. Miles told me. Does that answer your question? It answers that question. I assume you have a... Indeed I have. And I'm afraid, Doctor, there's only one way to answer them. What's that? An exhumation and an autopsy. <laughs> So that's it, Paul. It's all over, isn't it? The autopsy will undoubtedly be tomorrow, and after that, of course, there'll be a trial. The next decision is easy, isn't it? It would be useless to try and run away. It would never lead to anything. You and Carol could never find happiness with an axe hanging over your head. So the next day, during the autopsy, you sit at home quietly in the chair by the phone, waiting for it to ring. Hello?
3: Hello, darling. Oh,
1: is the autopsy over?
3: Yes. I've been waiting downstairs to take me to the coroner's office for the report now. Listen to me. Paul, would you do me a favor?
1: Anything, Carol.
3: Will you leave? No? Leave? What do you mean? Look, if it's going to happen, there's no reason for it. For happening to both of us.
1: That's about the most ridiculous thing you ever said. Oh, Paul,
3: please listen You Don't
1: go me. with them, Carol. I'll be down there in an hour. But if... It... Carol... There's only one thing in the world right now. And when that's gone, I don't want to be here anymore. I hoped you'd say that. So keep your chin up, darling. I'll see you in an hour. Dr. Evans. Oh yes, this way.
3: All right,
1: Lieutenant. There he is. Just a minute, Miss Willy.
3: Make him admit it. He's in love with her. It's been going on.
1: I said just a minute. How about that, Doctor?
3: It's written all over his face. He's in love with her. All right, all right.
1: I am in love with Missus Cameron. So what? Whistler will return in just a moment with a strange ending to tonight's story. Meantime, all of the people in the Signal Oil Company, as well as signal dealers, and we of the Whistler Cast wish you a very Merry Christmas and a new year brim full of good health, good cheer, good luck. And now back to the Whistler. Music Paul, shouting to the high heavens that you're in love with Carol, with all of them clustered around you like vultures. It doesn't seem to matter anymore, does it? In spite of your love for Carol, you know that sooner or later your sense of responsibility would have forced you to tell the whole story. There's a long silence. And then the police lieutenant slowly walks over to Lucinda Withers. All right, Miss Withers, now that we're all here, maybe you'll tell us why you tried to frame Mrs. Cameron. Why?
3: Oh, I, I... don't know what you're talking about.
1: On April 5th, you bought a hundred grains of cyanide at the black and white pharmacy on Farrell Street, right? I, I...
3: I did no such thing. You
1: signed Evelyn Jones on the register. That's a
3: lie!
1: That's the woman, Mr. Thorson? That's the woman. I make a practice of remembering the faces of people who buy poison. Uh, uh, excuse me. I think I'd like to sit down. Uh, sure, doctor. Take a chair over there. Now, Miss Withers. Why did you try to frame Mrs. Cameron? Why did you put poison in the medicine you knew she had to give him? I
2: didn't! I didn't
3: do it! Don't lie to
1: me! Now, what did you do with the bottle?
3: I didn't do
1: anything with it! I left it in the... Oh, you did have the bottle, huh? Why did you try to frame Mrs. Cameron? Why did you try to frame her? She killed
3: him! She killed him just as surely as if... As if
1: she put the poison in the bottle instead of you, that's it, isn't it? She
3: didn't drop him! She never did! He was as
1: good as dead! So you thought you'd finish the job and hang it around her neck? Lieutenant, I must see Mrs. Cameron. Where is she? In the next room, lying down. Go ahead, Dr. Evans. Now, Miss Withers, we're going to take this all down right to the very... Caroline, You're
3: looking for Mrs. Cameron?
1: Yes, the lieutenant said.
3: Doctor Evans. Yes, I am. Well, Mrs. Cameron's one, but she asked me to give you a message, and she said she was waiting for you at the French restaurant on Washington Street. She said you'd know the place. Oh
1: yes, thank you. I know the place.
0: Carol.
3: Oh, Paul. Carol. Oh, please sit down, Paul.
1: Here it is—the same table. As before.
3: And we said it would never happen again.
1: Yes, the nerve of saying what will and won't happen.
3: We were fools. I oh. was the
1: fool. Thinking all the time that you'd killed him.
3: I know, but you had every reason when I think how I asked it after it happened. But I thought it was you. You gave me his prescription that morning and an hour after I gave it to him, he... he was dead.
1: We were both wrong. It was Lucinda who killed him.
3: She thinks she did. They say they'll have a better case against her if they let her confess it first before they tell her. Tell her what? Paul, when you brought the new prescription that morning, the old bottle was still half full. And that's the one she put the poison in. What? That's the way it happened, Paul. You see, you see, darling, I used the new bottle the night he died. That's why I was so sure you did. The
1: prescription was perfectly all right. There was nothing... Of course it
3: was. Of course
1: it was. And I was so sure he was poisoned, those symptoms. Lucinda
3: was lying, Paul, about the burning in his throat and the cramps. Don't you see? Then the
1: autopsy was okay. There was no murder.
3: No, there was no murder, Paul. You see, darling, your diagnosis was correct. John died of natural causes, just as you said on the certificate. <laughs>
1: In tonight's story, were Kathy Lewis and Joseph Kern. The Whistler was produced by George W. Allen, with story by Harold M. Swanton, music by Wilbur Hatch, and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. Next Wednesday, for a full hour of mystery over most of these stations, tune in a half hour earlier. Enjoy the Saint as well as the Whistler. This is Marvin Miller speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: Well that's the show for tonight I want to thank you all for listening and remember you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash terror 1970 or you can find me on Instagram at Radio Show Nerd I also have a YouTube channel Terror Radio please check it out subscribe like and share the video will be highly appreciated again This is your host, Keith, better known as the Radio Show Nerd, signing off. Oh, I will also be featuring a bonus episode on Christmas. So look forward to that. Again, happy holidays, everyone.